This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas or on streaming services and compare and contrast it with films from days gone by. My name is Karsten Knox. I write about film on a blog called Flaw in the Iris. It's found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts reporter with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. On this episode, we're at the beginning of 2021, and we're taking a look at new and new-ish films from 2020 directed by women. We're going to start with Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman 1984. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, and this is a show that we're very much looking forward to, looking at the work of some wonderful female filmmakers uh, in many, multiple genres and uh, there's there's a lot to choose from we had a, uh, an embarrassment of riches of recent films that are available on a number of different platforms and if you're lucky where you are in theaters depending on uh, what your situation is right now but unfortunately here where we are in Halifax the cinemas are still closed so uh, I had to shell out to watch Wonder Woman 1984 uh, via one of the, the major platforms. I don't know about you, Carson. How did you uh, access this film? Yeah, same same deal, same deal uh, on streaming services, you know? And, and uh, I mean, it, it is. it doesn't seem quite right for a, a film of this scale to be seen on a small screen or smallish screen. But yeah, I... I um, you know, at the end of 2020, I know you're not a list person, Stephen, but I uh, was looking back at some of the best films of the year, and I made a list on my blog. Uh, 15, I chose 15 films this year, uh, and there are a lot of good ones. And I was really pleased to note that a third of the films that I chose this year are uh, were from women, from female filmmakers, uh, including Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, and Luxor, and The Assistant. Uh, and rocks, uh, and I think Emma was also in my in contention there. Oh, um, terrific! Uh, so you know, these are all films, are great films. I don't know if we'll get to talk to, about all of them, or or I just wanted to give a heads up that these are really quality films from women directors that uh, really uh, you know inspired me. And uh, and there'll be other great films we're talking about today. I got a feeling, Stephen, that Wonder Woman 1984 isn't going to be amongst. <laughs> either of our best films of of 2020 but it's still worth considering uh obviously uh patty jenkins is a well-regarded filmmaker and her first crack at the wonder woman franchise was really great back in 2017 this is a film i really liked uh and uh and so i had high hopes for this one and when i found out that it was going to be released uh on christmas day uh, you know, in cinemas where they're open and on streaming services, I was it's I was excited. It's been I think there were two or three superhero movies in 2020. It's a franchise I definitely have some fondness for a franchise, a genre, and uh, so yeah, you know, Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, <laughs> I was game to see it. I was excited to see it. Me and too. I, I uh, what what did you think of it, Stephen? I'm. It's a mixed bag for sure. We can't deny that uh, this is a film that has some flaws. Uh, I'm not on the side of people who consider it a complete and utter disaster because I found enough things to like in this film uh, to warrant, uh, you know, I wasn't going to say that was two and a half hours of my life that I wish I had back. Uh, you know, I, I, I think Gal Gadot still owns this character 
um, hands down. And I think, uh, I think she's great in the role. Uh, Kristen Wiig uh, comes in as a pretty interesting character who has an interesting story arc that sadly gets a bit diluted by the fact uh, the other villain, uh, Maxwell Lord, played by the Mandalorian himself, Pedro Pascal, um, you know, is a bit of, I think is a bit of a confused character the way he's portrayed here. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it is, it is not a, uh, it's not a home run like the first Wonder Woman was for me in, in, in any way, shape, or form, which is unfortunate. Uh, but apparently not enough of a disaster that they're not going to go ahead with a Wonder Woman 3 at some point down the road and, and bring the character probably in line with the rest of the DC uh, cinematic universe, as it were. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that too. And I mean, they've got so much money invested in this whole, uh, this particular franchise and all the other superhero dc superheroes i'm sure there'll be will be plenty more and we'll see a lot more of her uh but yeah i uh, i felt similarly to you steven uh, as usual i think we're we're on the same page uh there were things about it the ambition of the film impressed me i mean we're 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 60 plus years since the last film and uh for those who don't know uh diana uh she's a she's an amazonian princess she's she's uh she doesn't age so you know she's unchanged uh and in 60 years she's sort of become uh a, you know a a specialist at the smithsonian and uh, she lives in washington dc and it's the mid-1980s and uh she's still wonder woman and and like you know doing the superheroic thing but she's also has a private life and uh yeah so she's she's and she's still missing her uh her her first love, um, played by Chris Pine, a, a uh, an American. Uh, he was a, an air uh, ace um, from the from the world World War One, uh, whose name was Steve Trevor, who died at the end of the first film. So she's still missing him after all these years, which is actually very sad, I think, and kind of romantic, and maybe a little implausible. I mean, would you <laughs> would you really? Would, I mean, after sixty years, that's a long time. But you know, I guess it struck me that if. If you're immortal, maybe the rules of heartbreak are a little different uh, than for normal people. But uh, you know, so uh, then she uh, she basically the plot is such. One of her colleagues, Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig, as you mentioned, she uh, she's brilliant, but she's self conscious, and she she yearns for Diana's charisma and attention getting power. So. Uh, she, uh, they're working together. Also on the scene is Maxwell Lord, played as you said by Pedro Pascal. Uh, he's sort of a fast-talking television personality, looking to talk his way into big business and make his son proud, uh, and you know, become a the, the Amer- looking for the American dream. Uh, and all of their lives change with the discovery of a magic trinket that grants wishes, and for Diana, that brings Steve back into her life. Uh, there is. A, a certain lighthearted romantic fable about this. It reminds me, it actually, even though it's set in the 80s, it actually reminds me of some 1980s movies, you know, and it's in its weird mix of tones and, uh, and playful uh, score and um, all of it, you know, bigger than life in a way that, that is, is, there's an optimism to it that I could really get behind. There's all, it's like an, a romantic fable, uh, but, uh, you know, it had that kind of Amblin-esque, Spielberg-esque touch to it in some respects. Um, or, if not Spielberg, then his various sort of copycat filmmakers. I mean, he was so influential in the 80s. Um, but, and I, I really, I really like that 
that aspect of it. But as it goes along, it really does take its time going where it's going. And I found it drags in some places. And uh, and yeah, I think I think what a lot of superhero movies have uh, a few too many villains, and I think maybe they didn't do enough with the villains they had. Um, I mean, in this case, you know, there's only really two. There's Maxwell Lord and there's Barbara Minerva, who becomes uh, the the cheetah eventually. Um, and I don't think that's a spoiler because it's kind of in the trailer. <laughs> uh, so, you know, which, but it still felt like they weren't getting quite enough time. Um, and uh, and I would also say that, uh, you know, that, that there are the things about it that kind of turn me off too. There's, there's some really... Uh, unpleasant stereotyping of Middle Eastern characters in the film. Yeah, that's, that's a, I mean, even while I was watching it, I was kind of going, wow, we're, we're going there. You know, they, and they just basically imitate an 80s movie, sort of Middle Eastern, uh, you know, oil chic stereotype, rather than turn that on its head and do something interesting, you know, maybe make him the more interesting character than, than just a kind of stock villain. And, and they don't, they don't bother to go that far with it, uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I could, while I, yeah, I guess, I guess at the end, I mean, I'll just say that while I appreciate the ambition that's on display here and what they're trying to do, I just think that they kind of messed it up. I think it's a, it's a film with a lot of really uh, awful continuity problems. And, uh, and it's just, it just feels, uh, it feels rushed and it feels sort of haphazard in a way that I would have expected more from a film uh, and a filmmaker of this stature uh, and that they they had extra time to fix things. You know, I know that the, the pandemic arrived and everything got shut down, but I know a lot of films, you know, that meant they everything just stopped. But I, I would have expected that some of these problems would have been identified and then fixed. And that di- didn't happen, obviously. So... Yeah, it's it's not without heart this film, but it is a mess and it has major problems. The kind of thing that while I was watching it, I you know I sort of enjoyed, but in the days since, I've just been kind of like, God, that's not that that wasn't good. <laughs> so yeah, I, I've kind of it's not sat well in my in my memory. Well, I, I I just found Maxwell Lord as a character. I mean, he is from the comics, and the the way he's treated in the comics, it's very dramatic actually, in the the way that they're uh, sort of. Uh, rivalry uh continues and ultimately uh is dispatched is is has a lot more weight in the comic books than it does here in in the film plus he's you know they they try to they don't want you to completely hate him because he needs to have some sort of redemption at the end and i find that makes him kind of a wishy-washy kind of guy i mean you know the fact that he just wants people to get their wishes but of course that just makes everything go completely haywire and you know, interesting idea, you know, but it's hard to see where Barbara Minerva slash the cheetah fits into all of this. You know, essentially she comes in at the end, basically just to have another action scene uh, before the end. And it's not, you know, you could remove that and it probably wouldn't have had, had that much impact. And, but the, the idea of Maxwell Lord is this Donald Trump like figure whose uh, demands of his followers causes chaos in Washington, DC. I mean, that wouldn't happen in real life. So, um, <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know, superhero movies have nothing to no, do with real life. Exactly. But, um, you know, maybe I should watch it again with that in mind. I don't know. I probably will give this another look at some point just because, uh, 
you know that that first run through uh, the things that stood out were kind of glaring and i i feel like there are finer points to this movie that i i maybe wasn't picking up on but i, I do feel like I, I for example i feel like the whole 80s setting it it aside from some opening montages of people jogging with walkmans in in leg warmers uh the 80s thing really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing once the story gets up and and, and running along um it could have been set in any time period really and i i you know, I was kind of disappointed by that too. I was because I felt the f- first film did such a great job of that using that first World War setting and her entry into the into the new world and all that kind of stuff. And then here, that charm is kind of completely gone. But anyway, it, it does. I'm still looking forward to a new one, and and hopefully they'll learn from their mistakes. Um, you know, the, the 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 team behind this, and we'll see what happens next with Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm with you there. Um, I do think though the one thing they didn't really learn from the first film was the the sort of big CGI, um, uh, you know, action sequence. And and you mentioned uh, Cheetah and Wonder Woman having a a fight, and it just looked to me like an outtake from Cats. Like it was <laughs> particularly awful looking, and I was just like, really, like like that was the biggest complaint of the first film was the uh, the finale with all this sort of CGI sludge, and they just haven't. They haven't really figured out how to do that well, uh, and and you you think I mean I I rewatched the Marvel movies I I hate to compare them but I'm gonna uh, you know the MCU movies have figured out how to do this well and I feel like the DC they haven't and whoever they're working with just it's just not uh, up to the standard and uh, uh, and I, it's disappointing it's disappointing from film to film so you know fingers crossed uh, that they will figure that out too um now uh we should here i I don't know how to segue to this because it's an entirely different kind of movie (laughs) but uh we have a list of films we want to talk about films from uh uh filmmakers women filmmakers and uh there is uh one has been on our list because it just arrived even though i first saw it in in 2018 at the atlantic international film festival here in halifax and that's hopeless romantic really glad to see that it uh, ended up uh, on a streaming service here as streaming services and that people will have now have a chance to see it and it showed up very late in 2020 um and but that's pretty much all it has in common with wonder woman uh but uh, but yeah it's a uh, it's a low budget uh sort of romantic drama not really a rom-com um it's an anthology feature which is great and it's directed by six different filmmakers uh deanne foley ruth lawrence latonia hardery and martine blue all of whom i think are from newfoundland and then megan wenberg and stephanie jolene who are local um and it's a um it's a remarkable uh sort of charming film and you know it's funny there's not that many films like this structurally speaking where so many filmmakers get together to contribute to one picture uh that's i think the i think that's what makes it unusual but it's also so well done um it's usually when i've seen these kinds of films in the past that i mean i'm just coming up into my head i'm thinking about uh parish jatam you know there are some stories that kind of uh, outweigh the others. There's, there's, you know, good and bad. But I felt like this one was really unified in a nice way. Um, and so anyway, yeah, hopeless romantic is uh, is a charming little uh, uh, Nova Scotia film, and uh, I, locals should definitely check it out. Everybody should check it out. Yeah, I like anthology films. Uh, it's it's something that there were a lot of them in the '60s. I mean, you'd get people like Jean-Luc Godard and Federico Fellini, like really major filmmakers, contributing 
to these uh, multi-filmmaker kind of projects. Uh, maybe just a chance to do something offbeat that wouldn't support a, a whole feature or for whatever reason. And, and there's a few, uh, a few of them from the 70s. Uh, I think of New York Stories, where you had uh, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, and Woody Allen all teaming up for an anthology film. I mean, I th- and I think it's a, a valid format that uh, often doesn't get looked at enough. And one of the things I was seeing is that the quality of short films being made by East Coast filmmakers is pretty consistently high. If you go to the the, the short scalas at uh, at Finn Atlantic Film Fest, uh, you're seeing some really amazing work. Uh, you know, in eight, ten, fifteen minute form. And uh, why not take that quality? Uh, and that level of talent and combine it in a film like Hopeless Romantic. And I thought it worked really well, especially with a good, strong linking story. It's set in a wedding reception um, with a, a group of women kind of meeting up, you know, more or less by chance and then relating their whole stories about their adventures in love. And and the nice thing about it is the variety, uh, you know, keeps you going through the film because every story is different. Some are, some are just for the most part comedic and some are truly tragic uh and or you know or or terrifying in one case so it's um and and yet it's all balanced really well i guess maybe by having the same um cinematographer jeff wheaton and the same editor uh on board uh justin sims handled the the task of sewing everything together and i i think that really helps make a, a film with a bunch of different stories and a bunch of different viewpoints uh work as a complete entity yeah, and I know as a project, um, full credit to producers uh, Jay Dahl and Bill Niven for bringing it all together, uh, and the script by Emily Bridger, Ian McLeod, and uh, Jay Dahl again. Uh, it really, it really sparkles, um, you know. And I, uh, I feel like I don't, I, you know, it's it's always touch and go whether or not uh, a Canadian film or a Nova Scotia film will have a theatrical release, and obviously this one didn't get that chance, but. Uh, but uh, I, I really, I'm glad we're having a chance to let people know about it because uh, it, I think it's it's a charming, a charming film and uh, and and it's a great calling card for all these filmmakers who have all done other you know th- good work. Uh, certainly, I'm familiar with these uh, with these filmmakers. Deanne Foley directed Audience of Chairs, which is a film oh, I really liked. Film. Um, yeah, and uh, and you know we'll see, we'll be hearing more from from these filmmakers in the future. Uh, yeah, and you know what? Another uh, film, local film from 2020 that I also want to give a shout out to uh, is uh, the the newest feature from Andrea Dorfman, who is one of Nova Scotia's great filmmakers of the past 20 years. She does so many things, uh, from videos on YouTube to animation to documentaries, and uh, you know she she says that uh, her hobby is making feature films. I think she's made three or four since the early 2000s and her film spinster came out last summer and it is available also on streaming services and uh, that film really is a charmer and i believe was intended for for a big screen it was yes that that didn't happen but uh it's about uh, a character named gabby played by chelsea peretti who should be familiar to people who are fans of brooklyn 99 this is her first leading role in a feature film, and uh, she plays a character, Gabby, who's uh, 39. She's split up with her boyfriend, and she's bemoaning her romantic fate. Uh, she wonders if she'll end up like the older lady who lives alone in the apartment above hers, who she hasn't heard from in a while, and she suspects might have died by herself. Uh, she's feeling the pressure of being a single woman approaching 40, uh, and... Uh, 
everyone around her, including her good friend Amanda, played by Susan Kent, who is also in Hopeless Romantic, incidentally. She's great in Hopeless Romantic. Um is having kids and married. So it's about her path, you know, and it, it kind of upends all the uh, romantic comedy tropes that you were also familiar with. Uh, I thought it was a, a really great and knowing kind of insight into the kind of wish fulfillment that we all sort of take for granted as, as people who love certain kinds of movies. Uh, and I thought it was very cleverly done. And, uh, you know, another really solid uh, Nova Scotia feature film that people should check out. Yeah, and Chelsea Peretti is a great choice for Gabby. She, you know, if, if you've only seen her on Brooklyn Nine Nine, you know, Gabby is certainly a a, a a softer around the edges character than Gina Linetti on Brooklyn Nine Nine. She's she's still a little cynical, um, and and she's she's very quick witted. But you know, she's she's very genuine, and you know, she's a warm character, and and Chelsea Peretti really brings that out in her. Um, you know, she's. And, and makes her believable, you know. Uh, that's that's the thing about this film. I think a lot of people are going to see this and and recognize uh, kind of the reality of her situation and what a lot of people are going through because they don't necessarily buy into the trappings of of you know marriage and big weddings and and you know hopes and dreams <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, it's, you know they just want to make a connection with someone, and if it's not the right connection, then then why uh, why waste any more time on it and 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 uh, that's it's a reality that's hard to show in a film because it's it's you know maybe some people might find that sad or whatever but it, it's it's a reality that that a lot of people face day to day and i feel like this film approaches it in a in a realistic but warm and relatable way and and that's really why this film works so well today on lens me your ears we're talking about films from Filmmakers who are women, new films, I would say, mostly new films, uh, with one exception, I think, later in the show, but we'll get to that. Um, in this segment, we're going to talk about three feature films uh, that we both uh, have seen, Stephen and I, uh, that, uh, you know, that I think we both like for the most part. Certainly, this first one has been getting a lot of rave reviews. Stephen, I think you might have liked it a bit more than me, but we're going to talk about First Cow. This is directed by Kelly Reichert who uh, is an independent American filmmaker. She makes lyrical, gentle films about the human condition, human connection. Uh, I kind of think of it as a cinematic equivalent to folk music, where a lot of her films, not all of them, but many of them are period set, might be described as Americana. Um, and uh, yeah, one of my favorite films of hers is Wendy and Lucy, which is a quietly devastating 2008 drama. It's a portrait of a traveler played by Michelle Williams, whose poverty provokes uh, some poor decisions, and she loses track of her dog in a small town, uh, I think in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, her Reichert's movie, movies, they, they really stay with you, and I think that's true of First Cow, which is, uh, which is we you know, uh, sort of set on the, the American frontier, and it's about a sad-eyed chef, Cookie, played by John McGarrow, who travels with men heading west, and he crosses paths with King Lou, played by Orion Lee, a, a Chinese man on the run. And uh, at a trading post, they start a baking business together, uh, where King Lou provides the sort of business acumen, and Cookie provides the biscuits. And with the help of milk from an area bovine that doesn't belong to them. This is a, a character-driven uh 
drama. It's it's it doesn't rush, but it kind of insinuates. I found it, you know, soft and somewhat slight, but uh, it offers moments of drama with a little humor now and again, and uh, it's. Uh, you know, and it, it focuses on on this unlikely pair of of, of our heroes, uh, and we see how British interests at the time in the colonies brings a sort of class discrepancy, uh, as embodied by Toby Jones' character, Chief Factor, and Captain, played by Scott Shepard. Uh, the late Rene Aubergeois makes an appearance as a coot in a shack, and so does Ewan Bremner as a trapper. Um, the, it's a great cast all around, and uh, yeah, Stephen, uh, what were your feelings about the film? I, I love the gentle flow of this movie. Uh, it's it's a little over two hours. Did not feel like it to me, just because uh, I, I felt like uh, much like uh, her last sort of major sort of period story, Meek's Cutoff, the story of, of women on the on the frontier um, in the mid eighteen hundreds, uh, so roughly around the same time period, and sort of western or well western eastern oregon i guess it's part of the west um i you know i like how she just kind of immerses you in that world i I felt like there wasn't really a false note in the portrayal of of this universe that she presents the trappers out in the woods this austere trading post where they're selling their biscuits where it looks like everything was just kind of slapped together in a day and this town just kind of appeared out of the forest sort of thing And, and then all of a sudden you've got uh you know Toby Jones character with this house in the middle of nowhere where everybody else is living in these clapboard shacks. And he's got this beautiful house with servants and visitors coming from all around the world. Uh, I just love that contrast. And, uh, and it's just the, 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 the setup of, of how the arrival of a cow in a community that doesn't have a cow can cause so much, uh, you know, sort of trouble and avarice and, jealousy and 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 uh you know, th- these characters just feel kind of kind of lived in they have that that feel of having wandered through the woods or in the case of uh of king lou having you know been been around the world and you know he's he's probably the more educated and erudite of anybody in this universe and i just i just love the the, the little grace notes on on each of the characters um you know, and it's 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 a trademark of her work. I mean, I first discovered Kelly Reichardt's films through Old Joy from 2006, which is basically like my camping trip with Andre, about <laughs> two men on a on a who are again in Oregon in the, in in the woods, coming to terms with getting older and the things in their life that have gone wrong and all that kind of thing. And and I I feel like this has a similar feel, but um, you know, just a just a more confident flow of, of, of storytelling and it's you know a lot of it wound up on a lot of people's best of lists last year and I can I can totally see why I just I just love spending time with these characters and, and not knowing where it was gonna go although ultimately because of the prologue um, there's a modern day prologue featuring Elias Shawkat um, that kind of hints at where things are gonna go but we don't know how they're gonna wind up there so uh, I, I liked uh, I liked that method of foreshadowing for, for what was gonna happen and yeah, just just a wonderful story from start to finish for me. Yeah, I, I can I can definitely see that. I don't know that I liked it as much as you, but I uh, I would say that uh, the the overall themes of the story really resonated with me. I thought that first cow would make a great double feature with uh, there will be blood because <laughs> uh, they're both about the beginnings of a kind of enterprise in America. But Reichert's picture, rather than being an epic about a you know selfish megalomaniacal capitalist 
turns out to be a fable of friendship uh, where two men cultivate a dream together on the frontier where the notion of crime or of being an outlaw is very relative. Um, you know, and I think that's the one thing that, that these guys and Daniel Plainview from, uh, from There Will Be Blood have in common is a sense of opportunism uh, in their business uh, acumen. And, uh, but otherwise, they don't really have a lot in common. But they still, both movies are sort of about that American dream of like, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, uh, and using the resources that are available. Yeah, um, there will be milk. Yeah. <laughs> I will drink your milkshake. <laughs> and, they, and they do for the time being. And, I, and, yes. and Toby Jones' character just, you know, popping up halfway through the film, uh, you know, just, just gives it a wonderful charge. And, and you're not sure how to take him because he seems like a nice character, um, you know, a bit full of himself, a bit pretentious, especially for where he is at this point point in the world and, and then you but then they get to that discussion they overhear that discussion where they're talking about you know whether or not to flog a crew member on a ship and and you realize you know what a what a cutthroat um guy he he really is underneath the fancy suit and the all the talk of london and paris and and you know he's he may be more vicious than some of these trappers some of these rugged men who just spend their whole time out out in the woods and i you know i just love that contrast too between the you know he i guess represents the corporate interests that are going to take over america within another you know century's time or what have you and and i, I like that element of it as well mm-hmm. um so we should move on to our next film that we want to discuss this is something from director julia hart uh and uh julia hart is a filmmaker whose work i know i knew her her previous film uh called fast color which is in a very unusual swing at superhero mythology and i thought it was a very interesting independent film uh i'm your woman is a uh crime drama but also kind of deconstructed it's it tells a story of uh, gangsters from the perspective of the wife of a killer so if you can imagine heat uh, Michael Mann's, uh, you know, great uh, 1995 thriller. Uh, an interesting Michael Mann is thanked in the special thanks, uh, the credits of I'm Your Woman, which is the film we're going to talk about now. Um, if you imagine Heat, except instead of focusing on Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley and their respective crews, the whole movie was told from the perspective of Ashley Judd's character. <laughs> um, that's kind of what I'm Your Woman is about. It's it's, um, But imagine that instead of her being a capable, tough-as-nails gangster's mall, she's almost totally clueless about her, what her husband does, and so and she's incredibly sheltered, so she's incapable of doing anything for herself. Uh, so that's the scenario we get with Jean, played by Rachel Brosnahan in I'm Your Woman, whose bad boy husband, Eddie, played by Bill Heck, leaves her one night and doesn't come home. Instead, uh, Cal played by RNZ uh, Kenne, shows up and uh, he ushers Jean to a safe house, telling her very little about what's been going on. Um, so, so yeah, in complicating matters is that Jean has been recovering from the trauma of a miscarriage, and shortly before Eddie's disappearance, he dropped off a baby at the house, and Jean has no idea who the baby's birth mother is, which just adds to the kind of mysteries of the film that is happy to leave scattered throughout this narrative. Uh, Gene, in the first two acts anyway, is completely at a loss about the world that she's living in. And uh, she, all her, her motivations is to protect this baby and, and uh, protect herself. Um, I, I like the film. I just found that Gene was 
at times annoyingly passive. She's defined mostly by her maternal instinct and not wanting to get shot, which I think most people can understand. But um, Brosnahan doesn't play with her with a lot of uh, of of sort of variety of textures. I find her I found her a little dull, to be frank. Um, but uh, the film does eventually pay off in the last act. I will say that much. Uh, Stephen, what did what did you think about? Yeah, it's it's funny. I I remember reading your comment, uh, and I think I was I was maybe reading a text from you while I was sort of partway through the film, and I kind of wish I'd maybe had put the phone down and not read that because. No, that's oh, okay. I'm sorry, he, just sto- I was no, he didn't spoil it. It was just a, <laughs> I, and it wasn't really a spoiler. It was just say that you know when when she finally does kind of take control of the situation, or, or at least you know, or attempt to take control of things, that it, that it's maybe too little, too late, perhaps. Uh, but but uh, and I I was kind of like, well, yeah, but I mean, she does. Maybe if it had happened at an earlier point in the film, that would certainly strengthen the storyline. Maybe if it was like halfway through the arc. But but I I did. You know, I did like the idea of this this woman sort of having to come to terms with what's, you know, what's been going on in her life, kind of completely under her radar for all these years, and having to step up and deal with the fallout of her husband's misdeeds. Uh, and I I like the fact that there's a fair bit of ambiguity in what exactly uh, Eddie had been up to, or I mean, we we, we kind of know, but I, I I like that it didn't fill in all the all the dots. I mean, you have to you have to kind of imagine um you know some of what's been going on to get to this point where everybody's you know trying to and and why they're after her and and the kid as well as her husband like why they can't just let sleeping dogs lie that you know they they basically have to eliminate everybody connected to to eddie and his crew and uh and she doesn't know who to trust and and there was a lot of unexpected stuff happening along the way that that kept me engaged and and i like marcia stephanie blake as terry the woman she bonds with cal's uh Cal's wife, um, you know, I like that connection between the, the two women who are in the same universe, but from different backgrounds and, uh, and that relationship I found intriguing enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe cause I just like Rachel Brosnahan from fabulous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, I, I was cutting her more slack than you were perhaps in, in terms of the, the character, but, uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately she does kind of get up the nerve and you know realize that she can't just let other people ferry her around from place to place that that she's got to you know take take uh, take charge of, of her own life and and uh, you know I like that idea of, of you know getting out of this marital stupor that she'd been on all that time but um, but it's definitely it's definitely worth seeing I like the I like the 70s setting of it I thought it was pretty true to that for the most part and and it's just a, an interesting batch of characters and lots of surprises. So that's that's basically my my rundown of the film and why it worked for me so well. Yeah, you know, I, I can see what you're saying. I, I didn't hate it or anything. I just didn't think it was quite as remarkable as I was hoping. Um, and you can't argue Frankie Faison. Yes. Every time he shows up, it makes me happy. He's one of those actors who when he shows up, I'm just immediately happy to see him. Um, and uh, I just felt like so much happens off screen that our characters end up telling each other stories about what we're not seeing. It denies us a chance to participate. I guess it's a tell not show thing that kind of bothered me. But you're right. The 70s uh, setting is great. And uh, uh, and there's no doubt that this filmmaker, uh, Julia Hart, is a talent. I mean, she she there's a great scene in the middle of the film that brilliantly uses Aretha Franklin's version of Natural Woman uh, that I really liked. And uh, I really liked the setting, uh, you know, in and around Philadelphia. Um 
So, yeah, you know, there are things about it that I enjoyed, I guess, even though I didn't love the film overall. Yeah, there are some great set pieces along the way. The the, the shootout in the dance club in the disco and the, there's a there's a chase scene um, sort of later in the picture that's really well done. And and uh, there's a, there's enough of that to keep the narrative uh, going at a good clip for me as well. So, that, you know, I, I certainly uh, I certainly felt that Julia Hart handles all that stuff incredibly well. And I hope. You know, and I, I really want to go back and look at Fast Color and 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 Star Girl and some of her other features. They they um you know that's I mean basically the I'm, I'm Your Woman is kind of what brought me to her. But Star Girl looks like a fantastic sort of young person's film, and 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 you mentioned Fast Color, and I like the premise of it. So hopefully hopefully I'll be seeing more of her work soon. Yeah, no, for sure. I recommend Fast Color definitely. Um, so we have one more film to talk about in this segment, and that's Misbehavior directed by Philippa Lothorpe and written by Rebecca Frain and Gabby Chiappi. Um, and it's uh, one of the sharpest scripts that I've seen in quite a while on, on a feature film. And it's a largely unheralded British drama based on a true story uh, of the 1970 Miss World contest in London and how activists from a local wing of the women's liberation movement disrupted the televised events. Now this, people may not realize, but the the uh, beauty contests, uh, these pageants, like the 1970, like Miss World, were huge, huge uh, audience, uh, family entertainment uh, for television. I mean, they would attract millions of viewers from around the world. And uh, this film really, uh, it, it, it sets up the world so well um, and then also gives us clear access to multiple perspectives prioritizing the experiences of very different women with a lightness of touch and Kira Knightley plays Sally Alexander who's a recently enrolled mature student who's going back to school following motherhood and divorce who gets help from her mother uh, and her boyfriend this while she struggles with sexism in the esteemed halls of her her university uh, but she finds some personal success and satisfaction with a group of activists led by Joe Robinson, played by Jesse Buckley, who's great in the film. And uh, and then we also get to know the people organizing this pageant, um, Eric and Julia Morley, played by Reese Efans and Keely Hawes. And um, they're the organizers of this Miss World pageant. Uh, and uh, and then we also get to know a little bit uh, Bob Hope, played by Greg <laughs> Kinnear, with a really weird nose. Uh, he's the uh, he's the American entertainer, of course, who's been invited to host this event, uh, uh, much to the chagrin of her lo- of his long suffering wife Dolores, played by Leslie Manville. She's in the film for about three scenes, but she is great and she does a lot of good things. And that's not even it. There's still the perspective of the contestants themselves, most prominently. Jennifer Hostin, played uh, by Gugu Mbatha-Raw. She is Miss Grenada, and it's the first time that Grenada has participated in this event. And so there is some effort by the organizers to try to bring people of color and more representation into the story. And all of this stuff is going on at the same time. And, and, And what amazed me about the film is it gave each element, each character, enough time to really manifest. Uh, and it's it's funny, and it's it's definitely cheerworthy in places, um, while also definitely delineating the political impact. And uh, and it's it's an issue movie as well as kind of a sports movie. It's it's really something different. So, Stephen, what did you what did you make of it? Well, this is a, a fantastic surprise. I, I I was not aware of the film, and uh, 
you know, uh, Philippa Lothorpe, I think this is her second feature, but she's done a ton of work on major shows like The Crown and Call the Midwife and, and has, has a pretty sparkling resume, but uh, and made a feature called Swallows and Amazons that now about the war between our two groups of warring children in the Lake District that I really want to track down now. Um, but, uh, but here I, I feel like the setting of what it was like for women in Britain in the early 70s, you know, the, the whole 60s, um, you know, revolution has soured and, uh, you know, women really want to take what's theirs. Um, and and this is kind of the, the early stages of that. Weirdly, I just watched a documentary on the Yorkshire Ripper, which also uh, goes into a lot of detail about how the Take Back the Night movement started as a result of uh, the botched investigation into those crimes. So, you know, it, it was a really turbulent time. And the fact that she can, you know, capture the essence of the young women who are, are fighting for their rights and, but also, you know, give a pretty balanced portrayal of these young women in the pageant and what it means to them, you know, representing their countries on the international stage. You know, it's, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it obviously points out the ridiculousness of pageants. And I, I think in our back and forth messaging, I said, you know, like the, there'll come a time when beauty pageants will be looked on as equally as strange as, you know, sideshows and carnivals were in the 1920s or whatever. Like, like it just, and, and I, I feel like it, it does point out the ludicrousness of that whole system, but that for some women, it was a chance to be seen and a chance to be heard. And, and, uh, the, the, the true story of, um, of, uh, Miss Grenada, Jennifer Hostin, you know, she moved to Canada, she got degrees, she became a diplomat. She had this amazing life and career, uh, which the, the film kind of lets us in on, uh, toward at the end of it. Uh, it, it really says something about her, feelings for the characters on either side uh bob hope is the one weird sore thumb aspect of this film <laughs> i mean it's I, I mean i never would have thought of greg kinnear as, as a, being bob hope uh and i don't think he quite nails it but uh but other than that i, I really loved the, the portrayal of both sides and it took me a while to get into the rhythm of the film because I, you know when they start going more into the pageant areas like but i want to know more about kira knightley and and these 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 young uh, women radicals who are, are so invigorating but you know as we get more into the pageant uh side of the film i i got more drawn into it and so it's, it does take a while for the two sides to kind of coalesce but that's not really a major criticism because i i find i found that the parallel storylines you know the the payoff is is pretty major so uh definitely worth uh, seeking this one out Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. For this last segment of our show, uh, it seemed uh, just you know unfortunate timing that um, that uh, New York film director Joan Micklin Silver uh, passed away at the age of eighty-five uh, on New Year's Eve, and it was a name I, I recognized, but only knew a couple of her films. Uh, and uh, you know she was a major force in New York filmmaking, uh, both documentaries and uh, dramatic features, and and made a couple of really strong landmark films uh, both early and later in her career and i thought uh this would be a great opportunity to, to visit or in in one case revisit some of her work 
and uh, and sort of guide some uh, some listeners maybe to to view some of her films, which are, are readily available online in one form or another. And uh, I she she basically you know after making some uh, some documentary shorts made the feature Hester Street in 1975 it's set on the lower east side of New York in 1896 so it's right before the turn of a whole new century uh, obviously uh, it's um the height of of immigration from eastern europe into new york especially into the lower east side and uh and yankel bognovic uh, a, a russian jew he's been in new york for a few years now um played by stephen keats and he's been there for a few years. He's left behind a wife and son back in, in, in Eastern Europe. And he's, you know, he's kind of made his way. He's got a good job that pays a good wage. Uh, you know, he's got a decent uh, flat, uh, you know, in, I guess, in one of the Lower East Side tenement buildings. And, uh, and you know, he's, he's, he's done his duty to make a, a life for his wife and son when they re- uh, eventually arrive. However, uh, he also has uh, a new mistress because it's been three years. And so he's he's got uh, Dory Cavanaugh is his new uh, girlfriend, Mamie. Uh, and uh, so the arrival of his wife, Gittle, played by Carol Kane in a very early role for her. And she's fantastic here. She got an Oscar nomination for this. And their their young, young son, who he starts calling Joey, he wants to Americanize them as quickly as he can. Um, it's certainly an inconvenience for him. And it, it kind of turns his whole life upside down. But also, of course, uh, you know, a lot of this is told through the eyes of Gittle once she arrives in, in this strange country where she doesn't speak the language, you know, wants to adhere to her old customs and finds that... Uh, you know, things are, are not what she expected when she gets to New York City after this month-long journey from from their old village. And it's it's a beautiful... I mean, it's low budget, but it's a beautiful film shot in black and white. Uh, parts of the film are silent and set to music, like something out of a silent movie, something you might have seen at the Nickelodeon. And I guess in 1896, it's a bit early for Nickelodeons, but um, but it does have that period flavor. And it... It, it never really wavers from that. The performances are so grounded and, and, and so steeped in that kind of tradition that uh, that it, it really works for me. And it's, it's a lovely portrait. And, it, you know, it was something that uh, Silver and her producers, they, they eventually had to distribute it themselves. They, they had a hard time, uh, you know, getting interest from producers or distributors who said, well, this is only going to work with Jewish audiences. And, of course, they were... You know, those distributors were proven quite wrong. It became a big hit. And like I say, it got an Oscar nomination for Carol Kane. So it's it's something of a classic. I actually watched it on YouTube. There's a not great, but watchable copy on there. It's probably available in better versions elsewhere, but that seemed to be the, the best way to see it. And, um, you know, it's a great introduction to her work. Yeah, I'm glad we're having uh, this opportunity, you know, in the middle of our uh, Lens Me Your Ears episode on new films uh, by... Uh, women filmmakers to give some attention to Joan Micklin Silver, who whose work I also sort of knew, but not uh, not I hadn't seen any of her stuff, and I guess she hasn't directed since maybe two thousand and three. Uh, she retired from filmmaking, but um, but uh, yeah, you know, obviously her passing uh, made us think about her other work. She actually one of her films called Between the Lines is available on the Criterion Channel. Uh, it's from 1977. It's a light drama set in a weekly newspaper in Boston, starring Jeff Goldblum, Lindsey Krauss, John Hurd, Bruno Kirby, and Michael Pollard, amongst other, you know, notable uh, young actors who went on to do great things. Um, it's it's kind of a wordy sort of twenty-something hangout movie that ends up tracing the course of the boomer 
disillusionment from the counterculture 60s to the post-Watergate 70s. I think it's interesting as a cultural time capsule, and it's a it's lots of great, uh, if you love Boston, there's lots of interesting uh, street scenes uh, that, uh, that I think, you know, Boston's changed quite a bit since then. Um, uh, but, you know, um, she, I think maybe her, I don't know if it was her best-known film, but certainly the film I was most familiar with was Crossing Delancey from 1988, and that's the one that uh, we both watched. Uh, and that's about Amy Irving plays a, a New York bookstore manager who uh, who hosts a very popular reading series with uh, prominent uh, writers. And uh, her name, her character's name is uh, Isabel Grossman, otherwise known as Izzy. She's 33. She's single. Uh, her booby, her grandmother, engages a marriage broker, which I guess is a thing in New York Jewish community, uh, to try to set her up with a guy. But she makes her case that she's got a great apartment, she's got a great job, she's happy on her own, except for, you know, and she indulges in occasional nocturnal visits from a neighbor whose marriage is on the rocks. Um, but roguish writer and poetry quoter Anton Moss is a possible romantic conquest. He's played by Jerome Crabbe, who I'm used to seeing in villain roles. He's kind of <laughs> Paul hunky. Verhoeven movies. Yeah, there you go. Um, he's kind of hunky and European and self-involved, and I can sort of see the appeal. But the marriage broker introduces Izzy to a guy who owns a pickle business named by his name is Sam Posner, played by Peter Rygert. He's charming, but he's safe, and he's part of her past to the poor sort of working class Jewish community in the Lower East Side, as opposed to her sophisticated uptown world. And and what what the film does really well is point out that she's, you know, maybe just a little bit of a snob. She's not who she, this guy Sam isn't who she imagined she'd be with, so she kind of tries to avoid him. But the film sort of shows and shows her and us what a catch he is. And it kind of makes us fall in love with him and the possibility that she might be smart enough to actually grab him. And, uh, it's um it's a real charmer it's it's got some some tropes of 1980s romantic comedy which uh haven't aged so well there the score is awful is yes, awful well. all the the doobie doos <laughs> it's total schmaltz by the the roche the rushes but um the new york locations are great um and i really like the kind of touch of jane austen's emma in this story uh you know is that she's she she st- Izzy starts out as someone who is doesn't have a lot of self awareness really. She just uh, she's worked hard for her place where she believes is the right place for her, but um, you know she doesn't actually have that much experience in romance. And and this this is her part of her understanding of what she really needs. Uh, and uh, yeah, the cast is all really great and it's very well observed. Uh, so yeah yeah I liked it. It's a it's a lovely film. It was kind of interesting to watch it and Hester Street sort of so close together because you're kind of seeing the same neighborhood and and you know the, the kind of the, the evolution of New York Jewish culture from the from the early immigrant uh, days to uh, you know the quote unquote modern uh, 1980s and and the elements that have hung on you know a, a pickle business on the Lower East Side and a matchmaker which feels like right out of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and which is, you know, in fact, there's a song in Fiddler on the Roof called Matchmaker. And, but, and that's like a tradition that 
that kind of continues. And Sylvia Miles is so wonderful in that role as Hannah Mandelbaum, the matchmaker. She's just, uh, you know, a complete character. And then that's kind of what these sort of films need. And it, it definitely is a romantic comedy in the truest sense where it, it handles both aspects of that uh, with a really sure hand. Um, and Sam Posner, the, the Peter Riger character, is, 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 is a lovely character. You know, he has real respect for Isabel, even if she doesn't always, um, you know, have the same... <laughs> mutual feelings for him but uh but i love that give and take and and the fact that she has these choices romantic i mean she could just continue to stay single too like that's that's an option as well i I feel like uh the fact that she has multiple choices and the way she kind of mulls them over feels feels very real and even in this kind of romantic comedy atmosphere and uh you know it's it just it just seems like uh like uh joan mcclin silver had a real good communication with actors and bringing out uh, their their best natural qualities yeah yeah absolutely and uh it's certainly a loss and i'm, I'm really glad that uh we had a chance to see crossing delancey again and, and watch some of her her features because uh and you know fit her into this uh this episode of lens me your ears which is about uh, ostensibly about uh, new films because uh, you know we all we like to look back we we uh you know we're we're good at looking at new movies but we definitely part of our mandate here is to watch older ones and uh, and uh crossing delancey is available on demand that's where we were able to find it so uh so for those uh, who are interested in watching that um now as we we wrap up uh, this this episode on new films by female uh filmmakers uh, i wanted to give a heads up to a film that is due soon i was fortunate enough to watch it uh at the toronto international film festival in september which of course much of which was available online uh on streaming and so i watched it there and it's called nomad land it's written and directed by chloe zhao who um uh who is a filmmaker who might be known to some for uh, a film that she made a couple of years ago called the writer and uh, she has been now tapped to direct a uh, a Marvel Cinematic Universe film called The Eternals. And I mean, given the kind of movie she makes, it seems like a really strange fit. I can't wait to see that movie, though, just because how how interesting it'll be to take someone with her particular talent and put it towards a Marvel blockbuster movie, a superhero movie, uh, to bring it bring us full circle to where we started this episode. But uh, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland was one of my favorite films of 2020. And uh, it will be released in the next, in the coming weeks. And I really recommend people check it out. It's based on a a nonfiction book called Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. And uh, who also wrote an article for Harper's Magazine, which informs the screenplay. And uh, it's, it's a kind of, jaw-dropping portrait of a community uh, and an elegy for our sort of rapidly collapsing capitalist society. Um, And uh, it stars Frances McDormand as Fern, a woman who lives, who used to live and work in a Nevada mining town until the mine closed and her husband died and uh, and in what they call now the Great Recession um, in 2011 and 2010-2011. So uh, she has to find a way of making a living, and so she hits the road, and it's about this community of people who live sort of hand-to-mouth in uh, trailer parks in the in the desert and work where they can, sometimes for big multinationals like Amazon, they get contract work. Uh, so it's sort of about that gig economy that many of us are living in these days. Um, but it's also a lovely film about the beauty of nature and about... Uh, 
you know, the long moments of quiet, of contemplation and landscape. Uh, it's, um, it's really something. I mean, Fern is a great character to expect that Francis McDormand will be nominated for another Academy Award for this role. That's for sure. And uh, it's a really special film. Uh, I'm excited for more people to be able to see it. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to see Nomadland. I'm looking forward to when it becomes available. And and Chloe Zhao. I mean, it's it's amazing the 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 path she's on. I mean, started out strong with uh, acclaimed films like Songs My Brother's Taught Me and The Rider. And Nomadland seems like a real important breakthrough on, on a bunch of different levels. So I'm curious to see what she'll bring to the Eternals, uh, which is you know like. You know, like Guardians of the Galaxy, not necessarily a Marvel corner, a corner of the Marvel universe that, you know, the average moviegoer is going to have a lot of familiarity with. So hopefully that gives her the freedom to do something really different and uh, and, ta- and take that whole uh, genre into, into a new direction as well. So I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to what she brings to the table. And, and, and also uh, something we, we thought about talking about for this um show but it's not widely it's it's playing in theaters in new brunswick and prince edward island but it's not here yet because we don't have theaters open in nova scotia and that's promising young woman uh written and directed by emerald Fennell. and so um, hopefully we'll be able to talk about that at um at a at a point uh, somewhere down the road starring carrie mulligan who we just talked about and that's a film that was one of the films i was most looking forward to in 2020 so now it's one of my early 2021 uh hopefuls so i'm sure it'll i'm sure it'll be available uh I think probably within the month or so on other platforms. Yeah, I think actually, um, if I'm not mistaken, depending on when you're listening to this, it will be on streaming platforms on the 15th, which is a Friday, the 15th of January. So within the week, we'll get a chance to see Promising Young Woman. And yeah, I've heard nothing but interesting things about this film. And Emerald Fennell is a uh, an actor as well. She was a showrunner on uh, Killing Eve. And she also... Uh, had a role in The Crown recently. Um, So she played Camilla Parker Bowles. So she has an incredible career going for her right now as an actor and now as a filmmaker, a writer-filmmaker. So, you know, uh, that is definitely something I will be talking about. I'll be writing about on my blog, and hopefully, as you say, we'll get a chance to talk about Promising Young Woman when it opens uh, in the very near future. Well, that wraps up our look at new films by a host of very talented woman filmmakers and also a look back at Joan Micklin Silver's career and hopefully you can watch some of the newer films and discover Silver's work as well. And thanks for joining us on this journey. My name is Stephen Cook and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm also on Twitter uh, by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And you can find Lends Me Your Ears on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears and also on a, a Facebook page where you can leave a comment or reach us through that venue if you so desire. And uh, we'll uh, we'll be right on top of that. And of course, as always, thanks to CKDU 88.1 FM who air us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. and allow us the use of their studios when they're available for use in this trying times. And also everyone at the Village Soundcast Network who put the finishing touches on the podcast and get it up online and make it sound real pretty. And thanks to everyone and happy new year. We'll see you next time. See ya. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.